We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Different fantasy formats and what insights do we take from them to our core areas? We're talking about dynasty. We're talking about best ball. What do we take from them to redraft? That's what we're talking about this week on Stealing Bananas. I'm Ben Gretsch. And with me as always is Sean Siegel. And Sean, we had a little bit of a long first episode this week. We spent a lot of time talking about dynasty. It's a really fun topic to to talk about young players and how the lessons that we've learned in dynasty and, and what players we want to uh, attack and, 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 and try to build around in dynasty are, are also the, the players we want to build around and redraft and also some, some very big uh, best ball insights as well. Some specific ones about tight ends and, um, and running backs. And, and now we're going to talk a little bit more about player specific takeaways. This will, this will be a really fun show, I think. Yeah. I found myself getting pretty fired up about the player specific content as we were going through those formats, uh, just the, the show itself. I, I looked up and we were an hour in. We're going to keep the shows generally a little shorter than that for you, but but we really got going there and couldn't stop ourselves. We also mentioned in the first show of the week that we have a contest going. Uh, listen to the first show for that. If you have questions, uh, get a hold of Colin Kelly on Overtime Ireland or the Rotoviz Radio main feed. He'll help you out with exactly what you need to do there. But then let's jump right in here with some of the players that we're wanting to talk about. We talked about how dynasty and prospect evaluation and really understanding deeply the profiles that translate to the NFL are important for understanding both by lows and by highs and perhaps wide receivers who are going to take a secondary leap in redraft. Yeah, and we talked about a few of those wide receivers. We talked about DJ Moore as one that he, he not quite as young as maybe some of the others we were talking about, but we we think is ready for a huge leap. And we take sort of this long view and look at his, what he's done in the first few few seasons of his career, how how that could happen. We also talked about how the a few of these guys are, are pricey. A few of the rookies are pricey. Jamar Chase. Some of them have some questionable sort of value propositions in terms of the really wide ranges of outcomes they certainly can beat those those prices but there are some guys that are um whether whether they're by by highs uh, in some cases or, or by lows there's guys that we are looking to target um one of those second year receivers who is, is starting to generate some buzz that i 
absolutely love talking about any chance I get is LaVisca Chenault. And one of the cases I I've made this, this off season is that he should probably be viewed as the wide receiver one right now. And, and it's potentially an overreaction to, to early news out of camp. But um, as much as I like DJ Chark and I do like him, I still think he's very draftable, but there's a little bit of overlap in his profile with Marvin Jones. And there is, you know, at least a little bit of, of unknown about what he is as a player. Cause he's had three seasons now at the NFL level. One was very good to have been um, a little bit subpar in, in terms of, you know, his ability to, to draw targets per route and, and his yards per route run and, and some of those stats. Chenault was quietly very good at, at, at drawing targets per route as a rookie, or at least probably better than I think most uh, expect because he had an injured, you know, an injured season. And, and really in the second half of the year when he was starting to come on is when he missed time. But he had a better targets per out run than um, Chuck has had in any of his three seasons and better than um, I believe all of Marvin Jones career seasons, except for like his second year when he was sort of a rotational player and had had a decent number. And and so I, I think we, you know, we, there's a lot we don't know about the Jaguars, but Chenault's this type of player that, especially now that we're getting this, you know, early positive feedback on, I, I feel very comfortable saying, I think he's going to lead the team in targets. He's going to operate more underneath in an area where he can kind of be the main guy. And his profile is so good that he just seems like such an easy bet to make that secondary leap. He does. And when you pull up the root of his box score scout and you see his comps coming in, players like A.J. Brown, Juju Smith-Schuster, Michael Thomas, T. Higgins, DeAndre Hopkins. Are those guys good? Yeah, so so those are okay. And, I mean, you mentioned Juju on the previous show, the massive secondary leap that he made, even though Antonio Brown was there, right? So this Jaguars offense probably not going to be as dynamic as the Steelers offense was that season, but we can get into these situations where we're overly concerned about the other pieces in place. That may also be the case for a couple of the other guys who stand out here. We look at T. Higgins in the last week of the FFPC slim best ball. He's going at wide receiver 25, the beginning of round six. Brandon Ayuk goes a couple of picks later, wide receiver 26. Those guys were so dynamic as rookies that it's a little bit jarring for me to see them at those ADPs. Now, the last thing I want to do for my own teams is move these guys up, right? But when we're looking at where they are, even when you look at the guys ahead of them and say, okay, I can make a case individually for a lot of those players to have a solid season, maybe even an excellent season. But when we're talking about the type of upside for the jump for guys who did what they did as rookies, you mentioned in the first show as well, the series that I have on the breakout receivers every year, looking at year one, year two, year three, the differences in profile. But one of the things I also talk a little bit about is what people who break out at those years go on to do. And I don't think it's, I mean, this is just intuitive, right? But the evidence does back it up. The receivers who break out in year one, receivers who break out in year two, those guys go on to be absolute monsters. One of the things we're seeing now with Pitts and Chase and some of these rookie ADPs is that people are willing to bet on these guys right away to be stars. And at the same time, we do seem to have some pockets here for the second year players who maybe they're not quite to that talent level because the reason those guys are going so early is this idea of them being generational talents. But very few receivers have done what Higgins and Ayuk have done 
how much of this is people just discounting the second year leap and how much of it is the fact that they see three wide receivers if you include Kittle as a obviously a main receiving threat in that 49ers offense and being worried either that they don't want to pick a guy and are avoiding all of them or they think that the spread will actually be very balanced and it'll take down all three players. Yeah, and, and we could throw Sidney Lamb in here too. I mean, he's he's certainly price here, but very similar sort of discussion with the the three players around him. He was very, very good. Him and Higgins had such similar rookie seasons. They were both very good before their, their very good quarterbacks got injured for the season and it changed things for them. We talked when we talked to Devin Silva about about the Bengals specifically, and but uh, about targeting players in these sort of crowded offenses because it's projections and projected volume have become such a heavy driver of ADP that that is, in my opinion, fully explaining these ADPs. It's fully explaining T Higgins ADP is that well, what is the room and if he's as good as he was last year, if he's as good as we think he could be long term. Yes, there's room. What will happen is the Bengals will be very good. Their passing game will be very good. It will be sort of a rising tide. One of the things that I've really been railing against uh, over the last several years is people want to pick a wide receiver one in offenses, and it doesn't work like that in the modern NFL anymore. Analyze players independently because some offenses can support multiple wide receiver ones, and some offenses can't. This is something we talked about in in week two as we talked about the changing trends and how some of the offenses are – are going one direction, very extreme pass heavy. The, uh, some other offenses are kind of going the other way, and the, and the gulf is widening. And so the wide receiver one on some of the worst passing games might have a worse situation than somebody that we're devaluing because he's the wide receiver two in his own offense. And ADP might reflect that, obviously. There's there's a lot of teams that, you know, multiple players, multiple receivers get drafted from that offense before one from every team gets drafted. But it still affects the relative value. It still affects where Higgins is going and where Ayuk is going. Ayuk is a really challenging – well, they, they both are because they're, they're they're both surrounded by other very, very good players. Um, Ayuk's been a challenging one for me because what Debo's done in his first two years is very unique. I mentioned uh, our buddy Pat Cran in the last episode. He had a great stat that Debo is one of – it's like maybe 10 or 15 players who have had over two yards per out run in both of their first two seasons, and basically every other player on that list is a superstar. It's, you know, it started with uh, Julio Jones and A.J. Green were the only two in their year, and it was several other very elite players. A.J. Brown is another name that I remember from more recent seasons. Um, you're, you're basically only looking at great players. And so I still very, feel very strongly about Debo. And, and the question of, you know, whether Kittle and Debo and Ayuk can all coexist in a run-heavy offense is a fair one to be asking. But if they are all that good – then the Niners are going to just be a very explosive offense. It's not that Ayuk isn't going to to be productive. He's going to be productive. He, he's going to score touchdowns. He might not get as much volume, but we talked about this with guys like DJ Moore last the last episode when we were talking about sort of hemming and hawing about who would be better in, in most simulations of a season and whether that guy might just be a small loss to ADP. He might be might turn out to be just a small value loss. Ayuk and Higgins are guys, where they're going, they're not going to be significant losses for your roster. They're going to be good enough to be close enough to the other options that you could have taken in those ranges that it's not going to have a, a, a massive impact on the team that you built. It's going to be fine. They're going to score you points. You don't have to sit there and say, well, can he really get enough targets, even if he's very efficient and very, very good, 
can he really get enough targets to be as good as this other guy who I'm projecting for a ton of targets? That's not a question you should ever ask. The question you should ask is, number one, you know, once you've already established that he's good enough, that he's not going to be a massive loss for you. He's going to be very close to plenty valuable, and you're making the right positional selection at wide receiver in that range. Uh, once you've done those things, the question you should be asking is, what is the chance that this guy is an elite wide receiver? Is he is, is going to be a top five wide receiver in the NFL for a long time? I think, to your point, everything you just said laid that out, that what they did as rookies, the players who do that go on to be superstars. So that's the only relevant data point in my mind. I want exposure to these guys because of that. Yeah. And we, we think about our theme here with what we learn from the different formats. When we pull up the Rotoviz Triflex Dynasty ADP uh, that we have with our uh, leagues here with the FFPC, which give very clear ADP based on just what that format is. We have Lamb at wide receiver 7, Higgins wide receiver 15, Ayuk wide receiver 16. Those are big differences from their redraft ADP, right? And so when I'm looking at those two things side by side, I'm thinking there's probably an exploitable opportunity here. Now, it's a little bit of a tricky question because it's not just about this season, right? I mean, those guys are going to be going earlier in Dynasty because people think that they're going to have them for longer, which sometimes is true and sometimes the wide receivers get hurt. One of the reasons why we like the young wide receivers is actually for the points they score now. And so, again, one of the takeaways from those breakout studies is that year one, the breakouts are accelerating. The guys who break out in year one, they go on to be superstars. Year two is the big breakout. So it kind of depends a little bit on the threshold you use and exactly how you want to define it, whether or not Lamb, Higgins, and Ayuk were rookie breakouts, but they were very, very good, right? So if you put them in that group where they've already broken out, you have to like what they've got in the future. If you don't feel like they've fully broken out yet, year two, I mean, you're looking at the potential of a 300 point season. And so the dynasty ADPs make more sense to me. Now, again, it, it can always be a little bit misleading to just give numbers because a lot of these times the players are actually valued fairly close together in terms of how people see them. But then ADP kind of takes over, locks in a little bit. And even though people may value them close together, you are going to get them maybe two rounds later than a similar type of guy. And that does inform your draft plan. Yeah, absolutely. And to your point about it being a 300 season, uh, a 300 point season, I think people that aren't willing to draft them any higher are having a hard time envisioning what that looks like. Well, for each of these players and, and to the question you asked initially about how, how good their teammates are, one way it looks is one, somebody in the, that offense gets injured. It, it, it's a chaotic NFL season every year. If another receiver gets hurt, then if the Bengals hadn't taken Jamar Chase, we'd be taking T Higgins significantly higher. I'm not, you know, obviously saying, I want to see Jamar Chase get hurt. I very much don't. But that's the scenario we'd be in if he were to miss time. And and we would be taking him significantly higher if Chase wasn't drafted there. Higgins is the one, if we really are trying to pick one, this is the one that I that I target more. I was kind of talking about Debo and Kittle. And, and with Chase, at least there's this small unknown. I, I don't. There's not a lot of unknown with him. He's such a, a phenomenal prospect. But there are scenarios where Higgins and Boyd are their best two receivers this year, even though you know Chase played with Burrow in college and all those things. But Debo very much has his role and Kittle very much has his role. And I, I don't think those scenarios exist outside of injury as much where Ayuk is just clearly the number one in that offense. And then also the, the offensive potential. I think the Niners could be amazing, but they'll, they'll probably skew more run heavy. 
the Bengals showed some strong tendencies to throw even above really high pass expectations last year. Uh, so, you know, this could be an offense that just throws so much that the, the, up, the upside case for me is a little bit stronger for Higgins for some of those scenario-based reasons, but you want, you want exposure to all these players. What, what about the running backs? You mentioned Zach Moss last episode. Uh, the types of running backs sort of haven't broken out yet, but they have that upside. They're at a cheap cost. Who are some more that you really like in those ranges? Is sort of probably a sneak peek to everyone's favorite August article, the, the Zero RB countdown list. Some of these guys we might hear again when you get those written up later. Well, I feel like this is a sneaky way to introduce the fact that you really want to talk about AJ Dillon. So we're gonna we're gonna get that in there. Uh, but Ben, we'll do it after the break where we get best ball dynasty what we learned about running backs that we can take into redraft i just want to take a second to thank you for tuning in to today's show my name is colin kelly co-host off the road of his overtime podcast along with the great sean siegel we do appreciate each and every listener and as a thank you to each of you you can get yourself a 10 percent discount to a road of his nfl pass we're heading at full speed towards the season Make sure you're ready. Get yourself access to all the content and tools up on the Rotoviz website. All you have to do is add the code RVRADIO2021 at checkout to get yourself that 10% discount. Now let's go and dominate those fantasy leagues in 2021. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE System yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system. Okay, Ben, we're looking at some of these running backs, this idea that in Dynasty, 
we have to be willing to be a little bit patient with some of these guys. But in redraft, where zero running back requires you to get bounce back and break out runners, that we want to have players that we know from their dynasty profiles have value, but in redraft leagues, they're not being selected in part because they weren't good the previous season or they disappointed people and in part perhaps because they're blocked right and so two of the most interesting players to me are aj dillon who comes in with these very impressive comps to derrick henry and then has the snow game last year where he looks like derrick henry right there were concerns about his explosiveness his tested athleticism even though he was a big bell cow in college a lot of people felt like the crazy numbers that he put up in workouts were not going to show themselves on the NFL field. He's had at least one big flash game at the NFL level, but he's blocked by perhaps the most explosive running back in the NFL. Now there are some other competitors, but Aaron Jones, you look at what he does on a per play basis. You look at how uh, he's the prototypical run to daylight runner, where if he gets a hole, he's gone. I mean, he's not going to be sitting around trying to break those tackles. He's going to be in the end zone. Right. You also have some concerns about exactly how that offense is going to run. Another one that comes up for me is Darrell Henderson, where we have this player who was a third round pick in that kind of grouping uh, with some other names, you know, like a, a David Montgomery, some buzz for those players as they came in. He wasn't able to do a lot as a rookie. And then last year at one point, you see all of those explosive plays that he had as a college player. And he looks like he's off to the races and then a little bit of a hiccup with injury, a little bit of a hiccup or more than a hiccup as the Rams offense sort of self-destructs. But then during that self-destruct period, their other very exciting running back, Cam Akers, really just takes over and looks like the next potential superstar. So Henderson now buried in the situation where it doesn't look like he'll get the touches. I think those guys are going to have a little bit of standalone value. I think they could both be RB1s probably in the 6 to 12 range as opposed to the you know 1 to 5 range in the case of an injury and I like the fact that they're just they're simply not that expensive right they're in this range where you can load up on all of those wide receivers you want you can get that elite tight end you can draft one of those hybrid quarterbacks and these guys are still there yeah and the other guy I thought you were going to go to after you mentioned Dylan and, and, and for the second straight time I'm going to throw in another name that I think fits and it's another cowboy was, was Tony Pollard. And I think also fits very well to what you were saying, but Dylan particularly to me seems like an absolute lock to have standalone value. I think there's some concern with Henderson who I absolutely love to, I, I want to be clear. I, I was very excited at the name you chose that wasn't Pollard. There's at least some concern because down the stretch acres was getting the receiving work as well. But with Malcolm Brown out of the picture, Henderson is the clear handcuff at worst and very well could have standalone value as well. So he's an easy pick. He's a very easy pick. Dylan is the one where, uh, you know, Aaron Jones is exactly what you were describing in the first show this week. Uh, we were talking about some of your early fantasy successes and you, you know, we were talking about Josh Gordon and, and, and Austin Jefferson, and those guys. And then you, you mentioned some early running backs, the Jamal Charles and the, and the Chris Johnson, and he is the modern version of that as close as it can be and was, was cheap early, you know, was, was a, a late round draft pick went after Jamal Williams in the same draft for the Packers. They have always, they always liked Williams and they always used both. And they kind of showed obviously a willingness to rotate. They've never really leaned into Aaron Jones in a huge 
way in terms of workhorse, you know, type volume. He is sub 210 in terms of weight. And they did use a second round pick on AJ Dillon as this big back and then let Jamal Williams walk. Now, the fact that Dillon didn't play a lot in year one is a little concerning, but they used pretty significant draft capital on him. And then when he did get his opportunities, like you said, he was very good. And he was good into the playoffs with some some touches. He was efficient, at least not, not playing a ton. But there's just really no scenario in my mind where he's not a major part of their offense. They're a team that uses both backs. And Jones is still going to be very good. He's still going to be very productive. But I think there's a lot of people that are very excited about Jones now that Jamal Williams is gone. Like He still has an, a, probably a better back behind him, somebody who – on the last show, you talked a lot about how production is undervalued. He was a massive producer at Boston College. He was their entire offense, not just a producer in terms of the yards he gained, but they couldn't throw. They handed the ball off to him constantly, and he still gained yardage. Every team knew that they were giving the ball to A.J. Dillon. And so people talk about how he can't catch passes. That's what always happens. And we talk about this with these similar types of backs, that college teams, when they can just give the ball to this to this type of back, they don't throw it to him because they don't need to. They just hand it off to him every time. Teams still aren't able to stop it. He was still very efficient as a runner. And so they they essentially don't use him as a pass catcher because they don't need to. He was decent enough as a pass catcher last year. I think there's certainly potential for him to be more in the passing game than people realize. And then if something should happen to, to Jones, who is an undersized lead back, I mean, he's just going to be an absolute smash. A.J. Dillon is going to be is going to be a lot like Derrick Henry, but with the potential for more receiving, I think, actually. Uh, you know, you can't say that he's going to be the the outlier efficiency-wise that Derrick Henry has been, but he'll be a guy who gets 20 carries because he's that type of running back and could catch passes. You know, he could be the, whatever, the Steven Jackson type or, you know, these big multi-purpose backs that we've we've seen all throughout several years of, of, of fantasy that can be so so valuable and uh, you know you know he, he'll get the goal line work you know all those things he, he could get the goal line work anyway he could be a 10 touchdown player this year anyway uh aaron jones has always been very efficient down in that area i don't i don't think that's a, a certainty but there's so many ways for him to pay off adp just with some standalone value that i think will certainly be there and then on top of that and and, and to your point has all the profile for us to expect that he can do that has the you know the the both the production and the athleticism and was good last year in the, in the opportunities he got. So many ways for him to, to pay that off and has the upside. Like He's just such a fun and easy pick to make. And I was very bummed that he got picked a couple picks before me and Scott Fishbowl <laughs> in my zero running back team because I wanted him to be my, my running back one. I mean, I would have started him every week and then potentially I think had some massive upside if, if you know he were to find himself in a situation where Jones was missing time. And it's very different, the type of profile – that you can get some exposure to in round nine, 10, 11, than the types of profiles you have to be looking for in round one. And so if he doesn't get the receiving as a round 10 back, it's not necessarily going to destroy you in the same way that some of those guys who are limited receivers really have such a cap ceiling in the first couple of rounds and just don't do what you need, even when they hit. That's and those such a good point. Players we're trying to avoid players who don't do what you need, even when they hit. And so, I like Dylan a lot there. Then as we talk with talk about running backs and this overlap from redraft and best ball, a couple of the things that I see, right, when I'm playing Dynasty is that, you know, to an extent this goes without saying, but it's the importance of turning over your elite running backs, right? You're not going to be chasing a Johnson, a Gurley, Bell, 
you want to make those trades a little bit too early as a little bit too late. We look at best ball and we see, okay, the win rates when you stack running backs get to be extremely bad. And even at the top, you have to have these monster seasons for the backs to really do what you want. You mentioned Pat's piece, absolutely fantastic. If people haven't checked that out, you need a legendary season from your running backs, not just a good one for them to do these things. Because when we look at the average win rates in that first round and say, oh, well, it actually does look like those running backs are paying off. It's just very few guys, right? And so, yeah, it makes some sense to get exposure, but mostly you're losing from those players. So in Dynasty, we trade these guys away. In best ball, we try and make sure we don't have too many of them. There are guys that we're trading in Dynasty right now like a Camara, a Cook, you probably already missed the window on Elliott. Uh, Henry is a little bit of a tricky one in terms of what people will pay. And one of the notes that you have in here for me is that we're going to eventually have another 2015 where there isn't one of these 22 plus point per game runners. I think that when we look at 2021 and you start to look at the thesis for the individual players, there's a lot of danger here. And the two guys that I really liked last year were Dalvin Cook and Alvin Kamara. Obviously, Christian McCaffrey was my number one guy. I got fairly lucky, at least in redraft. He really took down all my dynasty teams, but I didn't get the 101, so I didn't have exposure to him in redraft. Sometimes luck smiles on me like that. End up with a lot of Cook and Kamara instead. But I want to throw out a couple of numbers here about concerns I would have even for those two guys, right? Cook was a 15-5 and five guy in terms of rush EP and receiving EP. And for those who aren't familiar with this stat, you can find it in a bunch of the different Rotoviz tools. It essentially is translating the touches into the expected fantasy value. And it works very nicely for understanding how running backs score, how their touches translate, and what you're really getting out of them in different areas of their profile, right? Cook, 15-plus points per game expected as a runner, five plus points per game expected as a receiver. Here are the guys who had that profile since the year 2000. Cook last year, Larry Johnson in 2006, Ladanian Tomlinson in 2004, Edgerin James in 2003, and Eddie George in 2000. So a bunch of guys in a completely different era. <laughs> and just as such, in such a, a limited list. And one of the things too is that Cook was more efficient than all of them. And so in terms of his scoring, it, it goes above and beyond even that profile. Then with Kamara, right? We have Kamara as this just immense talent. And we talk about emphasizing talent, emphasizing talent, emphasizing talent. But even someone like that isn't going to always have a season like he had last year, right? He was at 6.5 fantasy points over expectation per game. And again, we have the expected points. We can see how many more points they scored than their volume would have indicated. The only better number in terms of fantasy points over expectation per game for a running back since 2009, which is what I checked back to, was Melvin Gordon in 2018, right? And that's not even dealing with the fact that over the last two seasons, when Breeze wasn't the main quarterback, he's averaged 16 points per game. Now, I think that that's a little fluky. I think that's below what we would expect him to score. I'm not saying, okay, if he doesn't have Drew Brees, he's no longer Alvin Kamara, but it's a very different number and where he has to get to justify these first round picks 
is so far beyond that, right? And that doesn't even get into the problems that we have with Henry, Elliot. You're taking down two players that you actually like here. <laughs> right. How should we be approaching this, this 2021 first round? Because if you're looking for a legendary running back, you know, you have Christian McCaffrey, and then maybe you're praying that Saquon Barkley is healthy. Uh, Zachary Kruger and I are doing some uh, FFPC $100,000 best ball tournament. Barkley fell to us at the 111, and we're like, well, we don't know if he's going to you know, be ready for week one. But you, you have to take him there because, really, if he's healthy, he's the, the 102, and nobody else is even close. Yeah, and I, I think there's a couple things that I, I would I would say about this. Barkley is is yeah, I mean he he's a he's sort of the curveball, the wild card, the the anomaly here where you know we know he's sort of a generational type talent, which you know is obviously overused for running backs, but but truly was as a rookie, came out and was playing um from an efficiency perspective like it. <laughs> But there's concerns about him too. You know, he was getting a bunch of volume from from Eli Manning's uh, dump offs, and and with Daniel Jones, his his uh, targets and receptions numbers have been a lot lower. We don't know where his health is. Is the bigger one. You talked about Cook and Kamara. We we have concerns with Elliott. Uh, you know, Elliott's probably a great example of a guy who, because his offense is so good, because his contract is so good, because of all these things, could probably still be pretty good. But once they're kind of over the hill. I mean, he was never, I don't believe a 22 plus point per game guy in PPR before. I think his best season was 21.9 if I'm just doing that off memory. So I, I don't know how at this stage of his career where he lost some efficiency and looked like a guy that, you know, you sort of have to pay for some past production and, and some spark that we saw before, even if he gets that spark back. And even if this offense is incredible, it's hard. It's hard for me to see him being as good as he was in his early years to the point where he, he has a ceiling to break that number. Um, and Derrick Henry just ran for 2,000 yards and, and 1,900 touchdowns as well and didn't get to 21 points per game. So these are these are all guys that's really challenging to see for. So the, the other thing, the other takeaway for me is that Christian McCaffrey is just so much like, like he, this could be a year. He averaged 29 points per game. We're talking about having upside to get to 22 to 25 points per game. He averaged 29 points per game in 2019. He averaged over 30 in his three games last year. He only played three games. He was the same guy. He only, you know, didn't play a lot, but there's this potential where he has a 28 point per game season or whatever. Maybe it's a little lower and no one else is even over 22. Like we were saying, and he sort of just ruins fantasy football for everyone because he's going to be the one-on-one. Like, it makes me want to play in auction leagues and, and bid half my budget on him. That's one thing. The other thing is, if he were to go down again or, or struggle to come back or whatever, he's, you know, like I said, the one that I have the least amount of concerns with, so it's almost like you to, to see him fail, he, it has to be injury. But this could be the year, like you said. It, it could be a very similar year where no one is up in that range, and we haven't had that for a few seasons I, I think there's reasons to be wary of it. I think there's more of an argument for zero RB this year because of that. I think there's more of an argument um, for the people in, in tight end premium that are, are willing to take Travis Kelsey in the top five. And then there's a, a receiver that I think also belongs in the top five, and he's not usually going number one right now. Right. Tyreek Hill outscored Stefan Diggs by a point and a half last season. He has this fantastic situation with Patrick Mahomes and Travis Kelsey to pull some defense, 
but the two of them together have this monster target volume because the offensive line is upgraded, but the rest of the receiving core is not. And so I think that he's a potential top five pick. I think that right now my board is shifting more and more in the direction of McCaffrey, Kelsey, Hill at one, two, and three. But Ben, I know that you're going to make an argument for someone else as the overall wide receiver one, the new Antonio Brown, and you're going to deliver the goods in a segment that we're going to occasionally have and call Gretch Me If You Can. <laughs> yeah, somebody suggested that this would be a name for the podcast, which obviously is kind of silly, but you loved it and you wanted us to have th- th- these segments occasionally. I, I think Diggs is the wide receiver one. And I, I actually think it's not particularly close. I, I, I agree with everything you just said about Hill. He has been wildly efficient over each of the – like and consistent over the last three years. Two years ago, his some of his um, per-game numbers were a little bit worse, and and I, I think people were a little bit down on him when they were sort of pacing what he did. But he had a couple games where he played fewer than 20% of the snaps, and if you just – omitted those two games and then paced like the rest of his season in 2019, it was like very similar to his 2018 and then very, very similar to his 2020, particularly in all three of those years. The stat that I think is really interesting is, is his you know touchdowns per game. He's scored a ton and this is an offense that's going to continue to score and he scores in a lot of different ways. Um, you know, he scores on handoffs and, 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 and short passes, long passes, whatever. So I think he's a really easy guy to, to assume he's going to score a ton of touchdowns. But it is interesting that last year he and Devontae Adams were the only two who finished ahead of Diggs, and they both scored uh, – I, I believe they both averaged over a touchdown per game. I think they were at like 18 and 17 touchdowns or something. And Diggs had eight. What it, what I'm so excited about with Diggs when I when I go through my projections and all this stuff, we, we've already talked about you know how he was sort of misused in Minnesota and then and then used as the wide receiver one. It was very clear the Bills were trying to acquire him for that reason, both because they gave up a ton of draft capital to get him and because the, the offseason before, they tried to trade for Antonio Brown, who, remember, threatened to retire and all that. It was, it was very obvious they're looking for this guy. But And I'm not a huge splits guy, but we do know that receivers that go to new teams tend to struggle, and that's part of the reason people weren't as high on him last year. Diggs was great almost throughout. But I think what gets missed a little bit is he was way better in the second half of last year than even the first half. In the first half of last year, he averaged, I don't have the the numbers exactly in front of me, so I'm going to do it off memory, but I think I have it right. Uh, 9.9 targets, I think it was, in the first half of the year. It was like seven catches per game. It was 85 yards per game. Very good. He scored three touchdowns in those eight games. That's where his TD rate was a little lower. In the second half of the year, his targets per game went up a full target. It was up at 10.9 per game. His receptions per game went up even more than a full one. His catch rate got better. It's probably something that's you know a little fluky in, in the splits. It was up at like 9.1 catches per game. But he added 20 yards per game in, over the second half. He had 105 yards per game over the second half of the season. And then in the playoffs, and he also scored five touchdowns in those eight games. He was, you know, his touchdown rate was a little better. And then the playoffs, he also averaged over 100 yards per game, and he scored twice in three games there. So he closed his season with 11 games after, you know, the halfway point. And this is a very arbitrary cutoff, but I could say 10 games because his week nine game he didn't score, and it doesn't really matter. The point is his touchdown rate started to, to increase in the second half of the year very clearly. His target rate increased. His, his receptions increased. His yardage increased. 
He also only had one long touchdown during the regular season last year, one touchdown, more than 25 yards. That's something I thought was going to be really great for him because he was massively efficient down the field with Kirk Cousins in that limited role in 2019. He only had one long TD. He had other long catches. And then he actually added one of his two playoff TDs was another one that he added a 35-yard TD or something in the playoffs. But I think that's a part of his game where there's room to grow, where now that John Brown's gone especially, that, that they're going to use his downfield ability. He is such a talented player down the field. Uh, but the, the the splits, the thing that I want to emphasize with the splits, number one, in his final 11 games, he scores seven touchdowns. So there's reason to believe that his touchdown rate for the full season, especially the full regular season, probably low, probably better. Even if we just throw the playoffs in and look at his full season touchdown rate, it was better because he scored in two of the three playoff games. But the fact that he only scored eight times on that massive volume is just sort of weird. I don't expect that to happen again. And also, by the way, with the Bills, five TDs for their secondary tight ends, Lee Smith and Tyler Croft on those, you know, trick kind of play action leak out plays that they ran and also five TDs for Isaiah McKenzie, some of the jet motion tip passes and things that's that, that stuff's part of their offense, but that's 10 passing TDs last year that went to these sort of designed red zone plays that I, I don't think you would expect them to have that many go to those types of plays in any given year. So, so there's touchdowns for digs to add. The, the, the second point I want to make, or th- that's a key point because that's mainly the only reason he finished below Adams and Hill. The second point is I think there's room for him to just be even better this year with Buffalo because I actually think there was a lot of things that happened in the second half of the year where when Josh Allen was rolling out, you know, he started to recognize that he wanted to find dicks. I mean, there's just things that I saw and I, I was writing about on in Stealing Signals late last year where they just started to gel more and more. It was digs on third downs. It was digs on, on key plays that it wasn't so much that early in the year he was doing very well, but the whole offense was throwing so much. But the, the, the broad point is there's room for him to grow, I think. And I think that's hard for people to grasp because it was a career season. He led the NFL in catches. He led the catches, the NFL in yards, but this team threw way more than expectation. They made it very clear that they're a very modern offense. Like we talked about last week, they're going to throw a ton, just like the chiefs, but also that digs might be like the clear alpha in an offense like that. Like he might be the Devontae Adams to, to Aaron Rodgers going forward. And, and and my whole point is that we kind of saw that in the second half. We maybe didn't so much in the first half because he, he was changing teams. He's a new guy. I, I just I think that this is a, a situation where I want to keep betting on the talent. You're buying very high on a huge rise. Uh, but I want to keep betting on this talent where the situation is incredible. There is statistical room in an offense that throws this much for him to be even better and just absolutely run away. I mean, have one of the all-time wide receiver seasons, and I think he's good enough to do that. And this offense is so modern and so different that it's good enough to allow that. And, and Hill, to be fair, isn't an offense similar. But I, I why, why, where am I wrong? What, what am I missing there? My question for you then would be where do we draft them, right? And I'm looking at this kind of a couple of ways. I, I want to ask you about your fishbowl here in just a second. But the point that that I think is the most important is that when we talk about running back concerns and we talk about the race to win the flex, that starts in round one, right? You have all of these running back busts in round one. You and I have written so much about the dead zone. The dead zone is now becoming very popular, but you wanting to get exposure to running backs with the right profiles the 2021 season has created a weird dynamic where the dead zone might be the place for you. Again, not to get a lot. You don't want to stack in a lot of downside, but might be the, sh- the point to get your one guy. 
when you're trying to win the race to fill the flex, and then this, this is just so crucial in all formats. And we see it when we look at the way you win in all formats. You have to win the race to fill the flex, but to fill the flex, you've got to start it by filling your number one wide receiver, your number two wide receiver, your number three wide receiver. I believe those top wide receivers are going to gap even the next really good group this season. I think yep. that Hill will. I think that Diggs will. And I think you have to draft them like that. And so then I'm suggesting I might draft Hill as early as third, you know, if those first two guys I have would come off the board there. I've actually seen Hill go uh, as early as second, which was an interesting pick. And I'm not the only person out there making that selection. Then you were able to start SFB with Patrick Mahomes, Tyreek Hill, and Stephon Diggs. So you went with the quarterback first. Number one, I, how is this even possible, right? When, I, <laughs> when I, I had the 103, I started Kelsey. I took Hill at the coming back around at the 210. In my league, very intelligently, based on what you just told us in, in our new segment here, Diggs was already gone. In your draft, you took him a full round later. Yeah, it was the the running back lost that did that did the that, that created that opportunity. Um, six picks in a row before I took digs were running backs, and nine of eleven, there was a massive third round run on running backs. And so, I I I'm so excited and confident about digs and buying into digs that I almost took him at two twelve. Obviously, in hindsight, now I'm very sort of grateful that I was staring down Patrick Mahomes and Tyree Kill stacking them together. I mean, it just sort of made no, you know, way too much sense. And and I, I agree with you on the Tyree Kill point. I guess the one thing I should address about why I think Diggs is so much clearer than Hill is I agree with you that those two could sort of lap everyone. I do think there is even more ceiling for Diggs because he doesn't have Travis Kelsey is essentially the, the, the short version, but there's a lot of scenarios where both of them are very good um, and similarly very good. And Hill is probably the more efficient player because he's just been a, a, a massively efficient his whole career. So I, yeah, I took Hill there. And then when Diggs got back to me, I had him pre-drafted and was just praying. But to start with those three, yes, I was very excited. <laughs> that, that's how it happened. That's what you asked. That's how it happened. I don't, I mean, I, I don't have any other explanations. And then, Ben, in your draft, you have Stafford in the fourth, Moore in the fifth, Cup in the sixth, Noah Fant in the seventh. We had talked about the value, potentially, of these elite tight ends. I drafted a bunch of tight ends last season in this format based on research that Blair Andrews had done in the wrong read specific to SFB. We talked in the previous show about the tight end dominance and having exposure to these dominant tight ends is something that's so important in all formats. I took Logan Thomas, who is someone I want to have some exposure to because I don't want to miss if he has a Darren Waller type of season. I think with Fitzpatrick there, I think with some of the other receivers that they have, this offense is going to be able to move the ball. We know Antonio Gibson is the trendiest name at running back right now. If Thomas is able to take even another mild step over what we saw, or just is able to maintain what we saw over the second half of last season, then he becomes someone who can give you a little bit of that edge. I took him pretty early, and then I was able to get Fant in the eighth. So I have Kelsey, Thomas, and Fant, along with my wide receivers and quarterbacks. Fant was someone that you took in the seventh. He hasn't been quite as popular in this particular format. What are your thoughts about him filling that role as the elite tight end 
for this season, given the fact that they have, we've talked about the offenses that have three guys at wide receiver and how it impacts the wide receivers. But most of those offenses have a quarterback that could sustain them to an extent. What about Fant when he has all of these wide receivers and a quarterback that probably isn't going to get the job done? Yeah. And that's a big reason I wasn't on Broncos last year very heavily. I took Fant in part because even last year where this scenario was, was, was there, although Sutton was, was injured, his yards per route run rose, his targets per route run rose. He's, he made steps forward. And from a long view, we, we, you know, we all liked his profile coming in from a long view. He continues to look like he's going to be a very good tight end at the NFL level. I, I mean, it's, it's a little cheap to say, but like part of me still hopes that Aaron Rodgers gets traded there because um, I think, you know, something very unpredictable like that could could have a very positive impact on him. But it, I, I, when I was doing my Broncos projection, I projected I project the receivers and the tight ends individually. And then I, I cross checked the quarterback stats like most people do. And when I was cross checking the quarterback stats, I was just way too efficient compared to anything that Drew Locke has done or even Teddy Bridgewater has done. And so uh, I had to go back and reduce the efficiency for players that I like a lot. <laughs> and that's just a, you know, a projection, which I've said that I don't even put that much weight on, but it's kind of a sobering thing. Cause I've already split up the targets a ton. I've already split them up between Sutton and Judy and given Hamler a good share and fan and, and Albert O, you know, give him a couple targets. He was, he only played a few games last week, but he was, or last year, but he was good when he played. But I have fan, you know, seeing a lot of targets because of the targets per out run were good. And I also recognize that in his rookie year, he was very efficient. He took a couple, you know, quick outs to the house and he was very efficient in terms of like yards per target. That was down a little last year. He wasn't as good at creating sort of big plays. You, I think you could see scenarios where obviously that that happens again in year three that we didn't see as much last year. And, and so the hope is that, yeah, he continues to grow into sort of a target dominant role and and is very efficient on it, but it is very challenging with those those quarterbacks to to see it, to see how that all these guys can be supported. And they did have Sutton out last year, as you said, and yet despite the horrible quarterback play, when Fant wasn't missing an incredibly important fantasy playoff game for food poisoning, he, he really played pretty well. Right. And I have a lot, possibly too much exposure to these Broncos players because I think the offense will be solid. I think that Bridgewater gives them potential to upgrade the offense a little bit. You know, we're all kind of holding out the tiny bit of hope that they get some kind of savior to come in and do something better for them there. But we look at the trajectory of these tight ends. We look at who we would want in dynasty. We look at the fact that we prefer to be a year early instead of a year late. If being a year early still gives us the guy at a range who won't hurt you too much. So again, that same kind of thing we were talking about with DJ Moore. I don't think Fant hurts us here when you consider some of the other players going and when you consider just how bad the tight ends are going to be for so many of our opponents. So Fant creates, even with this bad offense, Fant creates this dynamic, this scenario where if we're wrong, we lose a very little bit. If we're right, it has a chance to really change your season because so few people within your league are going to have that tight end upside. Exactly. Yeah. And and this is a draft. That's exactly what I was thinking, because this is a draft where, as you noted, I went pretty receiver heavy and took two QBs a little bit earlier than I wanted to. 
uh, also at that seven, eight turn, Trey Lance was still sitting there for me. And I wound up deciding that rather than trying to take two shots at tight end, like I had been sort of planning in this range, that I was going to take a third quarterback because I just couldn't really understand why Trey Lance was still there and wanted some access to that upside. And and again, I didn't want to take three QBs. I wound up with, you know, Mahomes, Stafford and Trey Lance and, and Stafford, I had taken more than a full round below ADP as well. So because I only was going to take that one shot at tight end and otherwise basically play it as a late round tight end in a format that by the way, it's half PPR, half point per first down. And then for tight ends, it's full PPR, full point per first down per first down. So it's, it's not 1.5 tight end premium. It's double. It's double the receivers on the catches and the first downs. So you can, you can flex tight ends. Last year I took three tight ends in the, in the, in the middle rounds and was lucky enough to hit on Waller. had a couple misses too, but also grabbed Logan Thomas late was playing multiple tight ends most of the year and had, had a good team. I I'm going to, I'm going to target tight ends late as well in this, but the one shot I was taking in these middle rounds I wanted it to be what you just said. And and that's, I, I think, fan. Even over Higby, who would have stacked with Stafford, and I, I thought about a lot, but I the, the talent disparity was enough for me. Yeah, for me as well, in terms of how we're looking at those. That's going to do it for today's Stealing Bananas. We have so much more we could talk about. We could go on for hours, but we do have to cut it off somewhere. I'm Sean Siegel. With me is Ben Gretsch, whom you can follow at Yards Per Gretsch. We'll have more episodes this week. Sub- subscribe to our feed to get them when they release. Please drop us a rating and review on your favorite podcast app. And until we chat again, keep drafting. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.